This is Southeast Asia Crossroads, an educational podcast from the Center for Southeast Asian Studies at Northern Illinois University. Today, we are joined in studio by Lisa Nishalek, and we learn more about her research on the Field Museum's collection of the Java Sea Shipwreck. Well, welcome to another edition of Southeast Asia Crossroads. I'm your host, Eric Jones, and with me is uh, Lisa Nizelek. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me today. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for being here. And Lisa is the Boone Research Scientist in Asian Anthropology at the Integrative Research Center at the Field Museum, uh, our neighbors uh, to the east there. Um, and her research focuses on the Field Museum's Java Sea Shipwreck, among other things, and the the Maritime Trading Network, which um, I'm a fan of uh, uh, its history, and especially the production and distribution of ceramics and some of the ship's collection. Um, so again, thanks for coming to our campus and giving us a talk. Thank you. It's my pleasure. So uh, the the Field Museum has this kind of impressive collection from the Java Sea shipwreck. Um, so give us a give us a snapshot of of what's in this collection. Sure. Um, currently in the collection, the Field Museum has more than 7,500 artifacts that were excavated from a shipwreck that was found in the Java Sea in the 1980s by fishermen. So we received this collection as a donation in 1998, 1999. Um, So from that time up until now, there's been a long process of documenting the material, so cataloging it, photographing it, doing descriptions and measurements on each of the pieces, and then also um, the research component. So trying to understand what this collection can tell us about early maritime trade in East and Southeast Asia. Yeah, and and of course the the kind of framing context for a lot of this is the is the Asia trade, the Silk Road. Um, so, can you for our listeners give a bit of uh, what's the what is this network we're talking about, and then and then some of the origins of of what we think about the Silk Road itself. Sure, um, a lot of people might be familiar with the overland Silk Road, so they've heard of this, you know, Silk Road, and it's this very romantic concept, I think, um, for the general public, but Luxurious. also for archaeology. Oh, yeah. Yes, you get your your silk, of course, right, um, and you ride on camels. Um, But we really start to see these networks having their origin um, as early as the Han Dynasty in China. Um, So this is about 206 B.C. to 220 A.D. And in 138 B.C., um, an envoy, Zhang Qian, was sent by Han Wudi, the emperor at the time. And he was sent sort of to the outer regions of China to see what was beyond the western borders. And he was specifically sent there to try to get allies in the Chinese fight against the Xiongnu, who were to the north of China at the time. Um, And he came back with tales of these wonderful horses uh, from the Fergana Valley that were excellent in military situations. But what happened, so they had the horses, um, they had knowledge then of peoples who who were west of them, um, but they also now had these trade routes open. So that was sort of this early Silk Road. 
And we do start to see silk moving into Rome from China um, by the first century AD. Yeah, and and obviously it's a it's a it's a valuable trade commodity, and the further it gets from its from its source, the more the more valuable it becomes. And so, it, by the by the by the time it gets to um, the ancient world in 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 the West, it's it's uh, where where would you rank it on the kind of high value trade item? Um, I would say it was pretty high. It was exotic. It was luxurious, like you yeah. you referenced, um, and it also had an air of scandal about it. Mm. Um, you know, writing um, in the first century A.D., uh, we see writings referencing sort of this very um, see-through quality of silk um, <laughs> that the women the women were wearing this and flaunting it. Um, and the Senate at the time tried to outlaw the trade of silk or ban the trade of silk and the wearing of it. And this was actually unsuccessful. Um, but it wasn't until about the 6th century AD that silk um, is finally being manufactured in what we could call the West. Yeah, yeah. so um, it, it, silk, among, among many other products, are, are circulating around uh, East Asia, South Asia, and Southeast Asian with bits dribbling over to to the Mediterranean world, um, the the shipwreck that that the artifacts of the um, Field Museum belong to, uh, those are of a of a particular Southeast Asian derivation. Um, so, so what's what's happening in in Southeast Asia in the twelfth and thirteenth century? Um, around that time in the 12th and 13th century, we've got um, some major kingdoms and empires that have developed in Southeast Asia. So on the mainland, we've got Pagan in Myanmar um, and Angkor in Cambodia. You know, and these are major um, Buddhist and Hindu kingdoms. Um, and in island Southeast Asia, we start to see um, the right, well, Srivijaya has been rising for a while, um, and then in the 11th century actually falls and sort of, in a way, leaves a vacuum um, for a lot of these societies in island Southeast Asia to compete for trade with China. And we actually have Chinese historical accounts um, that enable us to document um, diplomatic missions that were sent to China as tributary trades. So envoys from Southeast Asian courts would bring these fine goods, um, pearls, forest things like animal pelts, um, scented woods, resins, coral. Uh, they would bring all of these things to gifts as gifts to the Chinese court in order to have sort of the right to trade with China. So this trade, this economic trade, was sort of guised as tributary trade or diplomatic trade. Yeah. So there's this, there's this intense and and kind of lively uh, interaction going going back and forth, riding the monsoon winds mm -hmm. from uh, from from China, especially southern China into Southeast Asia, and then and so this well-worn corridor through through Southeast Asia that the those early Chinese pilgrims would have been, you know, coming through Southeast Asia in addition on their way. And then later, as you mentioned, and if Srivijaya kind of disappears, mm -hmm. the, the other um, 
uh, your kind of your Majapahits, etc. Right. They there's a there's a um, there's a bustling. Um, it, it 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 reminds me of kind of the maybe the later um, period post post Malacca mm-hmm. when when there's this. Uh, race to fill this vacuum that uh, maybe more European traders in the market, but that happens with the with the Chinese tra- traders. And one one point you made that's uh, uh, you know historian piqued my ears as being import, important and noteworthy is that uh, this is not small scale peddling trade. No, no, this is really um, large scale intense trading. Um, so on the overland Silk Road, we tended to see sort of low volume, um, high value products being traded. But once maritime really starts to pick up around the 10th century, um, even as early as the 9th century with the Belatung shipwreck, um, we, we start to see massive quantities of ceramics coming out of China. And these are pieces that are mass produced at, at kiln sites throughout China. Um, but especially at kiln sites near the ports that we're exporting these pieces. So we're not just seeing high-quality pieces, but we're also seeing really low-quality pieces um, that wouldn't be used in China itself. And so these uh, some of the some of the scale um, of what the ship was these ships were carrying was kind of and 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 again these are these are these aren't small ships, but they're also not. <clears throat> These aren't like, uh, you know, treasure fleet, uh, uh, kind of size either. So these are, what are you, what are some of your numbers that, I mean, in terms of iron and ceramics, the tonnage? Yeah. So just to give you a reference, um, the ship itself is estimated to be about 100 feet long by 30 feet wide. Um, and in terms of what it was carrying, the estimate is about 200 tons of iron that was being shipped from China primarily in the form of iron bars that were bundled together, um, but then also um, high-fired ceramics were the other major cargo. And we estimate that there were probably about 100,000 pieces of ceramics or 30 tons. Um, And these numbers 30 tons of ceramics? Yeah, 30 (laughs) tons, yeah. Um, So Michael Flecker, who was the archaeologist who did the recovery of the wreck, um, he's the one who's provided a lot of this information with the initial report, but... You know, people will ask me, why do you think the ship went down? And a lot of times I I just say, well, we've got 200 tons of iron. We've got about 30 tons of ceramics. Um, It could be that, you know, I'm not sure, but... Right, you've um, got a small margin of error if you, uh, yeah. Yeah, and sometimes these ships were older, you know, when Mm. they were sailing. So with the, um, I believe it was the Belitung wreck, which dates to the, the 9th century, um, there's evidence that the ship itself had undergone repairs. You know, there's not much of the hull left of the Java Sea shipwreck, so we can't really say yeah. how old that was. Um, but, you know, we do know that it seemed to have gone down in a single piece. It's not like it broke apart um, as it was going down. So, so on the on the ocean floor, it's mm-hmm. sort of like almost, I don't want to say gently, but it, but it basically looks like things rested where they probably were in the ship. Is yes, that- exactly, exactly. So it's not broken up with, um, you know, the bow in one part of the ocean uh-huh. and the stern in another part. Um, it's still all together. And we actually are- Is that pretty unique among wrecks like this or not? Um, 
Not necessarily unique. No, I think a lot of the ones that I've been looking at, um, the Inten Rec, the Chiribone, um, which date to the 10th century and are being were researched by Michael Flecker and Horst Liebner, um, you know, those seem to not have broken apart really either. So um, I think it's it's fortunate because it does help us then reconstruct what those ships looked like. So why? I mean, I mean, we'll, we'll get to the ceramics as some of the core of <clears throat> a bit of your research, but why all this iron? At that time, um, Java was iron poor and would have needed iron to make weapons and to make uh, agricultural tools and just other tools. Um, and one of the thoughts that I had, too, was this was sort of um, the transition into the Majapahit Empire, so there could have been more warfare taking place, mm. and so it would make sense to need more iron in order to make more weapons. The interesting thing is, though, that this is a very low-quality iron. So even though you know, you're getting this iron in, it may not be very good. <laughs> so low-cost, low high-quantity, low-cost. Okay, yeah, and I guess it serves the double purposes <clears throat> as ballast uh, and... Uh, Mm-hmm. And the bottom of the ocean about so the yes. so the um, the the iron is, doesn't have maybe quite as much to tell us as the as the as the ceramics do in terms of um, what we can learn from them. So, what was the what was the variety of the ceramics in the in the wreck? There is a really large variety of ceramics, um, and I should say too that the iron we just. I think it has a lot of stories to tell. We just haven't gotten there yet. <laughs> I didn't mean to disparage so, iron, so sorry for that. Sorry, yeah. say, sorry, iron. No, um, but the there's a great variety of ceramics that was that was found at the wreck site. Um, you know, we've got these sort of we've referred to them endearingly as our IKEA bowls. Um, so the, these are just very basic utilitarian bowls. And are these high fire porcelain? These are all high fired and but, but lower quality. Lower quality, okay. yeah. So thicker walls. Um, the glaze, so the surface treatment, is applied sort of sloppily, I mm-hmm. guess you could say, unevenly. Um, and some of them have a stacking ring, so these are areas inside the bowl where they haven't been glazed that you can stack one bowl on top of the other when you fire it, and they won't yeah. fuse together um, because glaze, when it's fired, tends to vitrify right. and turn to glass um, or glass-like. And you probably wouldn't do that with a with a valuable, um, expensive piece of no. fire, right? You wouldn't stack it. Uh, <laughs> no, that would sort of have its own piece of kiln furniture that it would lovingly yeah. be nestled in, <laughs> you know. But we have some beautiful, high-quality pieces um, such as this gourd-shaped ewer with a molded dragon handle, um, and the glaze on it is just this sort of crystalline blue, um, and it's mm. referred to as Ching Bai, which means bluish white. And pieces and the pictures like, were beautiful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, pieces like that look like they were made at the kilns at Jingdezhen, which produced a lot of very high-quality pieces. And in the 13th and 14th centuries, um, sort of became the the royal kilns. Um, but the majority of pieces appear to have been made in Fujian province, uh, which was known for producing mass quantities um, of these export ceramics of lower sort of to medium quality.
uh, one of the one of the stories I think your research has to tell is about the 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 kiln sites in in China. Um, give us a give us a sense of what these what some of these uh, places looked like and what they the their output. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So the kiln sites. Um, when we talk about a kiln site, we're not necessarily just talking about a single kiln. Um, these were large dragon kilns that would have gone up the sides of hills. And sometimes you'd have a couple clustered together, but you'd always have sort of a village um, developing up around these kiln sites. So those villages tend to have about 50 to 100 households. So it would, was it, is it, so I can wrap my head around a okay. dragon kiln, is this... Like how how big of a room is, or is this separate smaller kilns that are that together cumulatively make a massive thing? Or um, it's sort of a, an open corridor. Um, well, I say open on the interior, but enclosed over okay. it. Um, if you could imagine, I guess almost like a snake or a dragon hollowed out and enlarged. <laughs> Right. to this huge scale where you could fit anywhere from 20,000 to 200,000 pieces of ceramics in them. At, um, at like one firing? In one firing. Wow. Yeah, yeah. So entire villages were feeding their products into these kilns. Um, and then they would be fired and shipped. Yeah, the organiza- the, yeah I mean, you're kind of the organization necessary to kind of pull mm-hmm. the potters, the, 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 the clay, all of it. Like it's yes, incredible. Like the, it is. Yeah, you know, so you're thinking about clay, you're thinking about fuel, you're thinking about water, you're thinking about transport of these pieces to the port sites where they were shipped. Um, So a lot of organization went into these, um, you know, and... So whole whole families and clans involved in the entire kind of... That's what the village, or that's what these sites... Yeah, village... I imagine. Yeah, specialization of entire villages, yeah, and... um, you know, in the 12th and 13th centuries, one estimate um, is that about 60% of the households in Fujian province were involved with the production of export ceramics. So that's a huge industry, and it left its mark archaeologically. Yeah, I, uh, I imagine the, the environmental impact on a scale that big is even in... in um, uh, in you know classic terms, has to have left a mark. I I think it did. I haven't looked specifically into that, but um, kiln sites did tend to be located where clay was available, where fuel or wood was available, um, and where water was available. Not only water for production, but water for transport as well. And what we see over time during the Song Dynasty is that these kiln sites move from being close to the ports. Um, to more inland. So, mm-hmm. you yeah. know, they're seeming to run out of fuel and having to go to get more resources. Yeah, all right. That's interesting. Um, and some of the some of the pieces had, uh, you know, the, there are obviously this these artistic motifs, um, but there were different, a whole kind of world of belief systems that were um, represented. What, give, us, give us a sense of, of these belief systems. Yeah, so one of the things that we've been looking at is uh, are the decorations that we find on some of the ceramic pieces. And, for example, we've got about 1,400 of these ceramic-covered boxes, and a lot of them have lotus flowers molded onto them or peony flowers. 
but some seem to have things that are more specific to certain belief systems or religions. Um, one example is there's a, a covered box lid um, that has the wan or swastika on it. And within the arms of that in Chinese characters are the three jewels of Buddhism. Um, another covered box, the base of it, seems to have a peony molded onto it. And within sort of the flower opening, there's a cross or the Chinese character for wood, mu. Um, and that looks very, very similar to um, images on tombstones that we see in Chuanzhou of Nestorian Christians. Um, and then we also think we may have some Taoist imagery on two of the pieces, so a Taoist figure as well as a turtle uh, or tortoise, which could be associated with longevity. So there, do, do, do people speculate about were these that they were intending intended for different export markets that would want these, or are these do these represent the um, ideologies of the of the kiln makers, the, the 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 ceramists themselves, or what? Yeah, what do we, I guess we can't know for sure, but and that was my answer <laughs> right there. <laughs> um, I think it's a, a combination of both um, because we clearly see things that are associated with Chinese producers and China. Um, but archaeologically in Southeast Asia, there is some differentiation between markets. Um, so certain communities may prefer white glazed pieces, like white glazed small vases. Um, other communities might prefer um, sort of green glazed saucers. You know, So I, I think there's sort of this mix of what's being developed in China um, has Chinese imagery as a Chinese technology, and some of it could be being shipped to Chinese communities abroad, but we do see market choice, consumer choice taking place as well. Yeah, I mean, it's not it's not shocking, not not much longer. As I, I mentioned in, in the textile trade, you see very kind of, we have very good evidence for just explicitly like, you know, these, these villages, um, you know, these weaving villages, uh, should produce a particular color, a particular weft, a particular design that uh, that uh, they're crazy for in Maluku or wherever they're trying to get um, spices from, and so right, yeah, right. there there's there's this uh, and, and and it's and it's uh, it is a marketplace, so there so they gotta they gotta move mm-hmm. they gotta move that <laughs> that porcelain. It's just yeah yeah. I mean, they don't want those large quantities of porcelain sitting in a warehouse, you yeah. know, not being used or traded or, you know, it's, it's sort of a waste of their resources. Um, but the other thing, you know, the porcelains are definitely one of the more durable things that we see archaeologically. And we're fortunate with the shipwreck that so many did survive and so many survived in shape or intact. Um, so we can look at them pretty closely. And I guess the seawater isn't... Uh it doesn't have the effect that it would have on iron or on wood or obviously, you know, they're, they're going to last um, longer. You mm-hmm. you had uh, you had also shown some images of the uh, Proto-Arabic uh, inscriptions. What what was that about? Right. Um, so one of our former Boone interns that we have at the museum, this is a program that we have every summer, um, she knows Chinese and she also knows some Persian and Arabic. <laughs> And we were very fortunate yeah. to have her. Um, <laughs> it's a good, and, in, good intern. Yeah, she was um, 
going through and describing and documenting some of the covered boxes and noticed markings on some of them. Um, and the markings were clearly not Chinese characters, um, but they do seem to resemble uh, Perso-Arabic characters. Um, and we think that this could be Xiaojing, which is uh, sort of, it's referred to as a child script, but it's a simplified form of Chinese written in the Arabic script. So I'm so hoping, like phonet phonetic Chinese yeah. written in Arabic script. Yep, yep. And I'm hoping um, Amanda Respis is at University of Michigan. She was the one who who sort of discovered these markings. Um, I'm hoping uh, that this is something that we can continue to work on. So yeah, yeah. But keep, it, keep us keep us surprised. Yeah, I mean it's really interesting because it's good material evidence of um, the Arab traders who would have been right. heavily involved in trade at that time. Yeah, and clearly Islamic traders are, are <clears throat> around in this period. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. So the some of the some of the science behind your research was was really interesting. Um, maybe how to tell us how do you analyze ceramics? I mean, because you know the the art historian or the historian might you know try to look at it, try to decipher some inscriptions, might try to like. Um, but there's but there's also a lot that that sort of hard science can do mm -hmm. for these pieces. So so how do we how do we analyze that? Yeah. So we start with uh, the visual analysis of the pieces, and from the visual analysis, we start to get an idea of the kiln sites um, of where these pieces were produced in China. But the problem that we've run into is that multiple kiln sites were producing very very similar looking pieces. At, at mm -hmm. the time. So you're not, even though you say, oh, we think it was made here, there, you don't know for sure until you really test that, right? Um, so we have the elemental analysis facility at the Field Museum, and we're able to do compositional analysis on archaeological materials. So that's one of the things that I do, and I've been working with students, especially from University of Illinois at Chicago, to do analysis on a lot of the ceramics that we have. So we're taking the ceramics in the collection, analyzing them, getting their elemental fingerprints, and then comparing them to samples from kiln sites in China. Um, so we're hoping to source those and eventually be able to compare them to other shipwreck sites and other terrestrial sites. So if I understand you, you can, if you have a good sense of something that you know was it was it particular kiln sites or or is it the kind of like clay they're using or the like the the elemental um, components of 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 a region in, in a kiln site or do you, you you is best practice to sort of take like shards from you know the the refuse piles that this kiln site you know like that's probably was produced here and stayed here um, and then compare that with uh, what's closest to the to the the piece you find from the shipwreck or, or yeah, that's, that's exactly what we do. Okay. Um, yep. Yep. Um, so good guess. Yes. Good guess. <laughs> um, no, we, we compare the material from the shipwreck to pieces that are from archeological contexts in China. Um, and we're able to see if they look like they're made from the clay, same clay source, um, because different clay sources will have different elemental profiles they may have very similar major elements in them, um, so aluminum, iron, silicate, but um, the trace elements and the minor elements will likely vary from source to source. 
One of the things, though, that we have to consider with ceramic production in China is that sometimes clays were shipped from a source to a production site. Oh, no. So typically what you might do in a sourcing project is get geological samples of clays and compare them to your ceramics. Um, but I think in the case of China um, and production questions, we can start to look at materials from the kiln sites themselves. You know, if you if you want to look more internally at production, then you start to get geological samples. But for our purposes, we're more concerned about the um, the actual kiln sites. Yeah, and so what are what is some of your have you gotten hits? What is some of your analysis to, told you? We've gotten a hit. Nice. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, we're still doing a lot of this, but uh, one of the early finds that we had was first confirmation that mo- pretty much all the pieces that we had sampled were made in the South. Um, and this was important because some of the pieces that we had that were more unusual that have sort of this black and white uh, floral design that would have been covered with a bright green glaze are very similar to pieces that would have been made at Sijo um, in the north. But based on the compositional analysis, we were able to determine that they were probably made in the south. Um, The second major thing was that we think that we've confirmed that some of the pieces, the more finely made wares, were made at Jingdezhen, which in the 13th and 14th centuries went on to become the imperial kilns. and Jingdezhen is known for its really fine uh, kaolin, which is used in the production of porcelains or high-fired ceramics. Shu from University of Illinois at Chicago, he's been um, sampling on glazes, and he's had really good success using portable x-ray fluorescence on the glazes, and he's been di- able to differentiate um, pieces from different kiln sites and compare them to samples from kiln sites. So I, I don't I'm, I imagine they don't let you just smash a pot um, and and get it or or do you do it? so how does how do you how do you decide like how do you figure out or or I guess how do you do it first of all like if you, if there's a piece you don't want to um, disturb then you don't test that one or you there's there's plenty of broken pieces you can test or what's the yeah um, with portable X-ray fluorescence or PXRF you're able to keep the piece intact because it's a non-destructive method, um, but it's only semi-quantitative and it does a limited number of elements. Whereas laser ablation, inductively coupled plasma mass spectrometry, which is what <laughs> I do, mouthful. and it is a mouthful, um, that we need to take, um, at least at this point, very small samples from a piece. So typically I'll work with sherds, um, and we do have hundreds and hundreds of sherds, uh, and I'll submit a proposal for approval by the curatorial and collections team. Um, and we basically use a Dremel and cut off a tiny piece yeah. <laughs> um, and stick it in the machine for analysis. So because it is a museum collection, there is um, a, a great concern over the conservation of the material. So we, we work together on that. So. Right, right. But, but, the, but these this... At a, 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 a tiny chip can can help uh, enlighten the rest of the collection. So right, can, I guess, really... right, and that's what we do. We we weigh the costs and benefits of things. Um, if it's a piece that's likely to go on display at some point or is completely unique, it's unlikely that yeah. a destructive or semi-destructive analysis would be approved. Um, 
but I've had a good run so far. Um, <laughs> and we're, we're in the process of developing um, protocols for using a portable laser, uh, which means we don't have to take a subsample. We can actually sample from the whole piece and then stick it in the mass spectrometer for analysis. Um, so that's moving forward, and we'll hope, hopefully be able to do that in the summer or fall of, of this year. And so is there, there must be a, a, a parallel team or teams in, in China that are, that are finding these samples from the kiln sites and then, and then doing the same test, or how does, how does that coordination work? I actually have a colleague from Sun Yat-sen University, Huan Shang, um, who's been a visiting researcher at the Field Museum over the past couple of years. And he has been able to obtain kiln material for us um, and bring it to the Field Museum so we can analyze it at our labs. But there are labs in China that do do similar analysis. So if we wanted to compare with them, um, we'd have to get uh, material to sort of calibrate the results with them. Okay. So. But yeah, I guess going forward, it could be a lot of, as all, as all of these data sets start coming together, potentially, like a lot of uh, stories could be sorted out. Yeah, exactly, right? exactly. And there has been quite a bit of research done on the kiln side or production side, but I'd really like to push for more research um, in terms of compositional analysis being done on the shipwreck side, because we have these huge collections of ceramics from shipwrecks that most of them haven't been extensively looked at using compositional analysis. Um, and I think it's a really big opportunity that we should take. Yeah, plus they exist as, a, as a, a really unique archaeological find that is, you know, in, in a snapshot together with, well, you know, the proximity to, if you find a, 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 a random shard somewhere, it's difficult to know. I mean, we... we, we we don't know everything by finding a shipwreck, but you can, the proximity of all these other things to, to the, the, the trade products is, uh, there's, um, you can kind of triangulate mm -hmm. understanding, it seems, or am I just biased towards shipwrecks? <laughs> no, it's, shipwrecks are interesting as archaeological sites because they do encapsulate a point in time when all these materials that could have been from very different places came together and basically were frozen in time. Um, and you do get that at archaeological sites on land, but there tends to sometimes be a lot of disturbance that might um, make it, I think, hard to understand the context of the material. You know, I mean, archaeology... It, it, it is a science, and it is something that takes great patience um, in terms of the recovery of the material. So we've learned a, we've learned a lot from uh, this research. What are what are some of the the takeaways for for the field, and then maybe um, what directions do you see it heading? This research, in terms of maritime trade, I think it's really important to realize um, sort of how we can use shipwrecks and port sites 
to reconstruct these ancient trade networks and start to look at processes associated with globalization. So things that we're very familiar with today, you know, we can look back, you know, 800, 1,000 years and even further into, into the past and start to understand these really large-scale, broad relationships that people from very, you know, distant parts of the globe had with each other. Um, and, and I think the, the, the historian in me always thinks about, you know, that the way that colonialism interrupted um, uh, and disrupted uh, Asia that, and that kind of, um, and, the, and the kind of hegemony that, that, that Europeans exercised uh, until recently, uh, there that we tend to have the bias that, that it's always been that way. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, you, you can, you can go to a country like Cambodia and think like, oh, you know, this, this is a, this is a third world impoverished country. And then you realize that Angkor Wat, like, and you start doing the math thinking like, wait a minute, like yep. <laughs> maybe the greatest thing that human, humans have ever constructed yep, yep. exists. Like, you know, the, the, I, the, I think that, that the revelations that some of this research can have to the, the interconnectedness, the vibrancy that, um, that, uh, the colonial moment may have, may have dampened that it, we see it in full display. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So a lot of, um, you know, these achievements, these technologies um, that we associate with the West, with Europe, um, with colonial times in particular, or industrial times, we see those things in Southeast Asia, in China, very early, you know, compared to Europe, let's say. Um, while, while, while Europeans were stirring their hair with sticks, uh, there, yeah, was, there was this... We have this, the, yeah. the dark ages <laughs> where Europe kind of forgot about things. And to the know. listeners, we know you're not supposed to use the dark ages, but I'm still going to say it. It's funny. Yeah. Yeah. I'm using it in context <laughs> yeah, yeah. here. Um, but yeah, so I, th- I think it's important to realize that a lot of these things that we consider Western um, yeah. are Eastern as well. Um and, you know, we, we think about things with mass production and automobiles, for example, the assembly line. Mm-hmm. But we look at production in China of these ceramics that were, were produced in the millions and millions. Um, and that's mass production. 200,000 pieces in a firing, like, wow. In what? one kiln. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so... Um, yeah, it's, it's pretty astounding. And for me, it's really about looking at the connections that people had with each other. You know, how did this bowl, this, this little, you know, humble bowl make it to the bottom of the Java Sea, you know, and where was it going? What can it tell us about the people who produced it and the people who transported it and the people who are going to use it, you know? So how can we use these pieces to, to tell the stories of people, yeah. Well, I'm uh, uh, I'm I'm excited about uh, some of the possibilities. So, um, give us give us some plugs here. What are the? Uh, um, you're obviously at the at the Field Museum. Uh, anything anything cool coming up uh, that we need to see? Well, we currently have the Mummies exhibition, which mm-hmm. just opened. It takes you inside of mummies um, <laughs> with modern technology. But if you want to see pieces of the Java Sea shipwreck, you can visit the Cyrus Tang Hall of China, which is a permanent exhibition at the Field Museum. Um, 
And, you know, we've also had write-ups in China, Visions Through the Ages, which is a book uh, published by University of Chicago Press and is a companion piece to the China Hall or Cyrus Tang Hall of China. Um, you can learn more about the shipwreck there and then also articles that we're publishing on our research um, with colleagues at Trinity University, at the Smithsonian, um, colleagues in Japan and China. So things just keep rolling out. Where's, is there a, is there a one-stop shop for uh, the best place to, on, on, online for them to search these things out? Um, at, at the, is it at the Field Museum? Um, you can find the list of publications on my webpage at the Field Museum. Okay. So I think if you search for my name in Field Museum, hopefully that will come up. <laughs> I've never tried it. Her um, last name is spelled uh, N-I-Z. I-O-L-E-K. Correct, yes. Um, so there's a list of publications there. Um, if you have access to, you know, your university's library, they may have access to online articles that you can search for with Java C-REC or Java C-SHIPREC. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, well, again, thanks, thanks Lisa, for, for coming out, and uh, we look forward to uh, hearing from you again soon. Thanks for having me. Thanks. Crossroads would like to thank Joe Kinzer for today's music and the GV for production assistance. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.